This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So can I get you gentlemen something more to drink? Or maybe something to nibble on? Some pizza shooters, shrimp poppers, or extreme fajitas? Just coffee. Okay. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's The Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and have you ever wondered about the food you eat? Today, we're diving into restaurants and the changing of a whole industry with today's guest, food industry writer, Corey Mintz. Plus, one IRA rule is a-changing, while another is staying the same. What's going on in Washington? We'll focus our headline on a rare SB look at Congress. Of course, that's not all. I'll also mosey on down to my trivia stand for some hiking-related trivia, and we'll throw out the Haven Lifeline to a lucky listener. And now, two guys who are ready to take a hike into the second half of this week, it's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. Hey, stackers, and welcome to the official beginning of the second half of your week. I am Joe Salcihai, Average Joe Money on Twitter. And what a show we've got for you today. Corey Mintz, as Doug, as you so eloquently told us, is on his way down to the basement. His, his new book is going to give you a little bit of the creepy crawlies about what's going on in the restaurant industry right now. It's called The Next Supper, The End of Restaurants as We Knew Them and What Comes After. And uh, if you, you remember, you remember OG when Tony Bourdain had his book Kitchen Confidential and there was the chapter Eat Before You Read This? I never read that book, but it sounds like something he would write. Yeah, that particular chapter was explosive. They released it ahead of time, I believe, to the New York Times and it was amazing what's funny. Well, explosive and releasing it ahead of time. <laughs> it just reminded me of Monday's show when I had the three-week-old sushi. Yeah, and this this one's going to give you heartburn even more than that, Doug, because the restaurant industry before COVID was booming. Lots going on. And when industries are booming, it takes a lot of the bad things that are going on in that industry and kind of wipes them under the table, right? If everybody's making money. We're good. Turns out there's a lot not good in the restaurant industry. We're about to hear about it from Corey Mintz and also what we can do about it. Plus, as you know, OG, three main expenses, right? Your housing, your auto cost, and your food cost. 
So we're eating out at restaurants and now with DoorDash and, and Uber Eats, uh, we're spending more than ever on, uh, tell me about it on restaurants. Yeah, we got that, but we got a great headline first IRS with some news. Uh, so let's get this party started. But first this episode is sponsored by state farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget. Well, look no further than state farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers, they're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Becoming a member at Navy Federal Credit Union could help you earn more and save more. Their certificate options could earn you more than standard savings accounts with competitive rates. Not all financial institutions offer you as many choices for savings options as Navy Federal does. For example... You could start your savings journey with a low minimum deposit, add money at any time, and watch your savings grow. Thanks to flexible terms, you can use Navy Federal savings options for all kinds of goals, short or long term. Considering a big home improvement project, maybe you want to consolidate debt. You could borrow up to 100% of your home's equity with a fixed rate home equity loan with zero closing cost or easily borrow as you go with a home equity line of credit. Both options could help make life's big expenses seem more manageable. To learn more, visit NavyFederal.org. At Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equal housing lender, membership required, terms and conditions apply, loan subject to approval. All right, now we can get this party started. Let's roll. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our first headline comes to us from uh, Yahoo Finance. This is written by Rocky Mengel, who's their senior tax editor. Uh, Turns out in 2022, we have new IRA and 401k contribution limits that have been announced during our break week. And uh, there's some good news and some bad news here, OG. You want to start with the bad news or the good news? Uh, Let's do bad news first. Yeah, Rocky writes, IRA contribution limits won't go up next year for anyone saving for retirement with a traditional or a Roth IRA. 2022 limit on annual contributions to their account remains unchanged at 6000 bucks. It's been stuck at the same amount since 2019. The additional IRA catch-up contribution for people 50 and over is not subject to an annual cost of living adjustment. And that also stays at a thousand bucks. I think we're going to talk. Thank you. OG. We're going to talk a lot about stuff going on with the backdoor Roth here in a minute. And people point at the backdoor Roth, which I've got a piece that talks about that. I think this though is the biggest crime of all. Almost half of Americans don't have access to a regular 401k. And so, so they're subject to this, BS $6,000 limitation. Like, why is it not the same for people that aren't eligible for a 401k as it is for everybody else? Why can't they save what? 20,000 bucks? Just have uh, a total, right? Like just say the total amount of money that you can put in all of your retirement plans is 30 grand. Why not? 
And we don't care where you put it. Put it in SEPs. Put it in simples. Put it in 401ks. Put it in Roth 401ks. Put it in Roth regular IRAs or traditional IRAs or who gives a crap IRAs. We got all these plans to get rid of this program, get rid of that program, but we won't raise the limit on people that don't have access to 401k plans. And guess, by the way, OG, who doesn't have access to 401k plans? A ton of people that we're trying to bring along for the ride, right? We're trying to to get more people involved in financial literacy, trying to get them saving. And yet we don't raise this one limit. Just so, so frustrating. Okay. Now that we got that negativity out of the way, you want the good news now? Bring it. If you do have a 401k, 403b, or a 457 plan, if you're the half people that have those, and the federal government's thrift savings plan, you can now contribute up to $20,500 in 2022. That's a $1,000 increase. Thank you for giving the half that already had the bigger amount, a much even bigger amount, but leaving the rest of us behind. Appreciate that. I don't know who was uh, thinking that through, but that's uh, wild. Also, by the way, a contribution limit for a simple IRA, which is a retirement plan designed for small businesses with 100 or fewer employees, that also increased. It goes from thirteen five to 14000 Once again, why the hell is that number different than it is for the 401k? Why are these numbers different? Well, you see, the reason for it is that on uh, page 6,419 of the IRS code, subchapter 4, uh, paragraph 19, sentence 7, who knows, man? So dumb. Just so, so dumb. If you're, and, and you know, we talk a lot about focus on the things that you can control. And I know I'm complaining about stuff that we can't control, but this is just stupid. I just wrote a letter to my congresswoman. Maybe I'll do this for this as well. You're like, hey, riddle me this, Joker. This is, this is horrible. There also are a few other changes. The 2022 income limit for the savers credit for low and middle income workers is 68,000 for joint filers. That's up from 66,000. Okay, that's good. 51,000 for head of household filers. 34,000 for single filers. Those all went up. So that is some good stuff. But in other news, CNBC talks about with the the new bill that was just passed. So far, OG the backdoor Roth IRA has survived. So the backdoor Roth is still around. And once again, why we have to do this backdoor Roth and riddle me this, how much money a year can you do the backdoor Roth? Well, it's still up to 6,000. Yeah. Or seven, depending on your, depending on age. This piece comes to us, as I mentioned from uh, CNBC, this is a Greg Iacurchi. Uh, who wrote this, uh, says a retirement tax strategy favored by the wealthy survived in the Democrats' latest social and climate spending plan after an earlier version had it on the chopping block. I, <laughs> uh, favored by lots of people. I hate that choice of words. That is just favored by the wealthy. How about if we get rid of all of these? Well, you can't do a Roth, but here's what you can do. You can do this gyrational uh, limbo game where you well, technically you can't do that either. Right. It's just, it's a loophole. That's a loophole. That's right. Yes. Technically they haven't you said can't. you can't. It is. They haven't it, said you can't. Yes. Uh, the reason rich people do this is they don't want to pay taxes on their investments. Said Albert Farrer, a tax and employee benefits attorney in Forest Hills, New York. The fact they don't have any RMD rules supercharges the accounts even further. Also available to anybody who wants to put $6,000 into it, even those who don't make all sorts of money. Put some money in a Roth IRA. And by the way, if you want to know how to use a Roth IRA well, look at why 
wealthy families are using the Roth IRA over, maybe they have access to 50 bajillion tax shelters, OG, but if it's favored by them and you can do it too, maybe something for you to look at. But uh, so far, the backdoor Roth, why don't we just get rid of the backdoor Roth and instead just get rid of that income limit? If it's going to be 6,000 bucks, how much is that going to change somebody who makes a million dollars a year? versus somebody making $30,000 a year. Is there a reason why we have these two different rules? Riddle me that. I don't know, man. I don't, I don't know. But I well, think- it's just, it's just what started out as relatively reasonable numbers to average income has not kept up with it. Agreed. Yeah. But the good news is for a lot of you out there, you can save more in 2022 into these tax shelters. But let's also talk about it this way, OG. Even if your tax shelter hasn't changed, that's not a reason not to give yourself a savings raise next year. I think we still should think about giving ourselves a savings raise. And there's something to be said for having money outside of a tax shelter that's flexible as well. That's right. Need to be putting money away regardless of where you put it. Yeah. Whether the government changes the game or not doesn't mean that uh, that you shouldn't save more. Uh, we'll link to both of those stories on our show notes at stackingbenjamins.com. Coming up next... We've got Corey Mintz, a food writer uh, who's written for all kinds of, of different publications. We're going to talk about the restaurant industry and with so much of your money now going toward eating at restaurants, what do you need to know about the restaurant, about where your money's going? Corey's going to dive into a lot of that about how workers are treated at restaurants, where your food comes from. Just, man, this is a book that I really dove into. And uh, Corey, such an interesting guy to talk to. Can't wait to talk to him. But I think first, uh, Doug's got some uh, news about today's holiday. Uh, go take a hike day, I believe OG is today. Are you going off hiking with the family? Uh, no, but my mom is coming into town, so maybe I'll go for a hike maybe. by myself. <laughs> take a long, long, long hike. All right, Doug, what's, uh, what do you got for us on National Hiking Day? Hey there, stackers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And what do you do if you avoided National Clean Out the Refrigerator Day on Monday? Well, you ignore those awful odors by taking advantage of National Go Take a Hike Day today. What a one-two punch. Polish off that leftover pizza and then go walk it off. Nice job, calendar makers. Let's talk hiking, because healthy living experts say that walking every day has a bunch of health benefits that are great for your wallet and your waistline. According to AARP, walking adds years to your life, bolsters your brain power, trims those extra inches off your waistline, saves your vision, helps you sleep, and wards off depression. So here's a question. If you were going to take a nice, long, relaxing hike in the USA, what's the longest trail you could do it on? I'll be back with the short answer in just a moment. Man, I hope the holidays are more normal this year than last year. I remember last year, you know, normally we head for the Midwest and visit with family and we get our dose of snow, hopefully, and, uh, some cold weather before coming back uh, south. Of course, we ended up with a big old blizzard here in Northeast Texas last year. But the other thing that was weird was that our house is under construction. So just a strange year all around with all the stuff going on in the universe and also the stuff going on at home. But I'll tell you what 
can help you make it normal. Navy Federal Credit Union's cash reward card helps you slay the season. You can earn up to 1.75% cash back in all your purchases. When you sign up for direct deposit, you can redeem points as soon as you earn them. Learn more at NavyFederal.org, insured by NCUA. Stackers, you've heard the bad news. Mint is shutting down. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, well, there is some good news. There's a better alternative. Monarch Money, it's what Cheryl and I use to manage our money. I, as you know, advocate a weekly meeting and Cheryl and I live by that weekly meeting. We sometimes miss it, but we get back on the horse and half the reason is, is because we consistently get updates and reminders from uh, Monarch money. I'm a notifications off kind of guy, but with Monarch, I want to see the notifications because it helps us collaborate. We have our goals right next to the short-term spending that we have when we open up the app so we can see exactly what we're truly going for. And, you know, compare that thing in the moment that we want with what's the long-term goal. It's truly the next generation of personal finance apps. If you've been frustrated that there's ads all over your app or it's difficult to use or doesn't get updated, the Monarch people were too. And that is why they built a new kind of personal finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and constantly improving based on customer feedback. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, your investments, your transactions, and more. You create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now you'll get an extended 30-day free trial when you head to monarchmoney.com slash benjamins. That's monarchmoney.com slash benjamins. You're going to get to kick the tires for 30 days, which I absolutely love because you want to make sure that it's for you. And I think the longer you use it, the more you will see like I did, that uh, it's intuitive, number one. It has this very simple design that makes it easy to set up, customize, and use. It's easy to collaborate. Uh, Cheryl has her login. I have mine. We can set up how we want. And you can send it to your financial advisor as well to have them have a login, anybody who's on your team. And you know what? No extra fee for that, which is amazing. It's all customizable, customer-focused, ad-free privacy you can trust. They'll never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. So after trying out Monarch for myself, I get why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, you can try too with an extended 30-day free trial. All you have to do is go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash Benjamins for your extended 30-day free trial. Hey there, stackers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And looking through this AARP study, which definitely I got from somebody else much older than me, on all the health benefits of walking, I'm just amazed. Do you know that if you log 8,000 steps a day versus 4,000, your mortality risk goes down by 51%? And if you up it to 12,000 steps, you're 65% less likely to kick a bucket or push a daisy. That's why I've decided I'm going to walk 25,000 steps a day. I'm never going to die, right? Hashtag science people. If I were going to walk that far, what's the longest trail in the USA I could walk down? Well, this is a little bit of a trick question because it's actually a tie. Both the American Discovery Trail, the only path that leads from the Pacific Ocean all the way to the Atlantic and that covers 15 states, ties the Great Western Loop Trail at 6,800 miles. 
Interestingly, the Great Western Loop passes through 12 national parks and 75 wilderness areas and has only been completed in its entirety by one person. Did you guess the Appalachian Trail? Amateur. While maybe the most famous trail in America, that trail is the eighth longest, stretching just 2,174 miles. I could do that in an afternoon. Okay, time for you to hang out with Joe and Corey Mintz and talk about the reason for your next hike, a trip to the restaurant. Or, you know, maybe not after you hear about what's going on in that industry. See ya! And on my dad's shortwave radio, it's my new friend, Corey Mintz. How are you, Corey? I'm doing terrific this morning. I'm working on my second cup of coffee. That's that's good. Just getting ready for us. It's a two cup of coffee morning before stacking Benjamins, of course. Uh, you, by the way, also just had a birthday party for a two-year-old in your family making some cupcakes I saw online. We did. It was a great success. You know, you write about restaurants and about how the help is treated in restaurants. Was the help treated fairly when you were making your cupcakes? Well, I was the help. I, or, or let's say that uh, my wife and I were the owner and the chef or the, the GM and the sous chef, whatever. We were absolutely equals. But no, she made the cupcakes and she was she actually came downstairs with a cupcake with a very disappointed look on her face and the, the icing cord of dripping around the side. And she said, just, you know, tell me what to do. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it for you. And, uh, and it turns out I learned how to pipe rosettes when I was in cooking school. I hadn't done it in 20 years, but when she saw my rosettes, which were absolutely mediocre. And, you know, if I was in a kitchen, somebody would say, Hey, that's a great start. Now do a hundred more before you get one. But she was very impressed. You write early in your book, during the introduction of your book, that we think of restaurants as places to eat. I'm directly quoting you here. And they are in the same way that Tony Soprano would describe his operation as waste management. What does that mean? (laughs) Well, in my years as a cook, and then later uh, when I became a restaurant critic and then a food columnist and got to work as a reporter inside restaurants and spend some time kind of embedded there and see what, what goes on. It's a very outlaw mentality. There's uh, certainly not all restaurants in the book. Where I try to separate them into different genres so you see how sort of different socioeconomic rules apply to different restaurants. But in general, the sort of hit urban chef-driven restaurants, there's a really prevailing attitude of us versus the world. We're outlaws. We're pirates. We're we're bikers, we're gangsters. Uh, the rules that surround and govern our workplace are not something that the square nine to five world would even understand. You know, it's something you hear echoed in, in what they call pimpology. The purpose of which is to convince the people working under you that the rules that govern the legitimate world or workplaces don't apply to them because they can't, because if they did, your employees would realize they're being taken advantage of, they're being treated terribly, they're being underpaid, they're being abused, all these things. So you cultivate this attitude of like, nah, this isn't a workplace. This is like our hideout where we do our secret thing that nobody else gets. It's funny. People like Tony Bourdain, I feel like, almost romanticize that for the rest of us, Corey. He did a great job of it. I mean, I felt that way when I was a cook. I personally enjoyed the fact that I worked every Friday and Saturday night because it meant 
I didn't have to make an excuse to go to see somebody's band that I didn't want to see anyways. You know, the things that my friends were doing in their 20s that they'd invite you to. I don't want to do those things. Sorry, man, I got to work. I got to work. I was work. And and, and I loved having, you know, Mondays off. I I loved the idea, like, if I need a new light bulb for my refrigerator, I'm going to go to the hardware store on Monday. There's nobody there on Monday. I don't have to, like, compete with other people. And certainly Bourdain was successful. I mean, he was a terrific writer, you know, before he was a, a television celebrity. He was really evocative at communicating a lot of the feelings within the kitchen, not just from the cook or the chef, but kind of within that whole ecosystem. And I think one of the unintended consequences of his success is that he helped promote that attitude, the sort of um, yeah. pride and suffering that goes along with being an exploited worker where you go, no, I'm not being exploited. I'm tough. Look how, look how macho I am by enduring all of this and not complaining about how, you know, tired or broke, even though his book was a book about addiction and his recovery from addiction, somehow, much like Scarface, a lot of audience members walked away from that, forgetting the end of the story, right. forgetting the part about getting clean and recovery or Scarface dying. They just remember the part where like the protagonist was high and excessive and having a real good time. We had a great guest on our show last year who saw Scarface when he was 14 years old, decided he wanted to be him, moved to Miami, of course, ended up in federal prison and didn't get the lesson of the movie. I mean, you're right. There's so many unintended consequences. You've got so many issues here. Dining in restaurants has become such a big part of our food budget as it is romanticized, right? As I read Tony Bourdain, I went from, you know, not really caring about restaurants to wanting to eat in at least one star Michelin restaurant I could find. If I could find an upscale restaurant and enjoy that, if I can watch the Netflix series about the celebrity chef, I wanted to do it. And we talk in financial circles about cutting your three big costs, cut your home cost, cut your auto cost and cut your food cost. And in food, you write that restaurants are really taking over for our grocery bill. I mean, we're starting to see quarters now where the restaurant bill is bigger than than our grocery budget. Yeah, certainly the pandemic has sort of interrupted the timeline. But essentially, back in the post-war era of the booming North American economy, food away from home spending, which means restaurants and such, uh, was about a quarter of our food budget. It just kept inching up, inching up constantly over the decades. And somewhere around the 90s, early 2000s, it just about equalized. And they were the same, our food at home spending, which is groceries, and food away from home spending, which is restaurants. And then a few years ago, around 2008, food away from home actually started overtaking it. And it only lasted a few financial quarters, but you could see the trajectory that we were on, especially in the the era of the third-party delivery where there's so many more opportunities, so many more reasons for people to be constantly not cooking for themselves. And I think the expectation is that was only going to continue. And then obviously, everything changed in March of 2020. Obviously, uh, last calendar year, food away from home spending did not exceed our groceries. But most of us, our grocery budgets uh, double last year. And obviously, over the next year or two, we're going to see a lot of changes. Nobody has a crystal ball knows how that looks now. But you can at least look at past behavior or our increased expectation that no, 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 somebody else is going to do the cooking. And you have to look at, so what are the unintended consequences of that? 
You also say, number one, Corey, as you wrote, this disconnects us from our food because somebody just serves it to us on a plate. I got a piece of paper. I decide what I want. I'm disconnected. I have no idea what goes on behind the scenes of my food. You also say that this has been a very quick change just societally. Uh, what was your number? Like 41% of people in the 1950s, I think, were connected directly to agriculture. They had agricultural jobs and the number now is significantly less. It's a little older than that. It's uh, it's at the turn of the 20th century. Okay. So back then, yeah, it was in the 40s. So many Americans were involved in food production and agriculture. And that dwindles down recently to about under 3%. Obviously, we can see the causes of that over these, over these successive generations. You know, how many of us grew up on a farm or know people who grew up on a farm? When we do, it's like, oh, wow, farm, what was that like? And you know, the consolidation of the farm industry and the industrialization are all part of that. But one way or another, we've all gotten further and further away from having any relationship with how our food is produced. You made me feel lucky for growing up in a farming family because a lot of the stuff at the grocery store I've experienced. But you talk about the experience of walking through fields and finding out that, uh, you know, broccoli, uh, I think, going bad because of the fact that they didn't use pesticides to grow it organically or different foods where one late frost, you know, kills a whole farmer's production. Like those are big things to the average person that I think most of us don't have any connection to, even if we go to the farmer's market sometimes. It's huge, the disconnect. What kind of farming did your family do? It was a fruit farm. It was a 125-acre fruit farm. Blueberries and apples, uh, pears and strawberries and raspberries. Wow, that's huge. And it was a commercial... Uh, conventional growing? Well, kind of. I mean, it was my grandpa's farm, but yes, he used pesticides and commercial stuff. Well, talk about farming conditions, Corey. He had 17 kids. Oh, wow. All with the same partner? All with the same partner. Big Catholic family. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, the, um, so his he kept his labor costs low, if you know what I mean. But to the point, most people don't have that type of connection, which means we don't know what questions to ask about our food. You, in fact, talk about your favorite Snickers bar and really horrifyingly the stuff that goes into the making of your favorite Snickers bar. Can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, I, I mean, I, it's been now you're bringing back memories because it's been a while since I've had a Snickers. And, and you're speaking to me from Canada, where anytime you get variations on uh, brand name candy bars, you know, they either don't make it here or they come here like six months later. So for all I know, you're like hazelnut Snickers. Yeah, we had that in 1992. I don't think we've ever had hazelnut Snickers. I'd never heard of it, but it sounds delicious. Yeah, they, they released like a like an almond and a hazelnut. And the hazelnut one was a great candy bar and a genuine improvement on the original. But then, you know, everyone's, it's rare that I eat candy bars now. And, uh, you know, you read the back of the wrapper and you go, what, what's in there? Or you read a news story and you find out where these companies source their products. And, you know, most most of the candies that we like, whether it's Nutella or Reese, you know, they're, they're getting, um, they're usually getting palm oil, which uh, helps give that creamy consistency to Nutella uh, from Indonesia, which contributes to deforestation and ultimately will lead us to the extinction of orangutans. And, uh, you know, the chocolate in so many of these companies coming from the Ivory Coast, we're still in 2021. These global companies cannot guarantee that there's no 
child or forced labor in the production of chocolate. I mean, how much more time is needed for these companies to say, you know, we're looking at our supply chains, we're, we're trying to work with locals on the ground and change things. I mean, that's just the reality of buying commodity products like that. And there's organizations looking to change things on the ground floor, but that's the nature of buying commercial goods. I remember reading, well, once again, Tony Bourdain talking about how I don't control your waistline. So uh, I just use a lot of butter. I mean, my goal is a lot of butter. You talk about eating more in restaurants and you get fat. You don't know where your food comes from there. You talk about your Snickers bar. I didn't know any of that about a Snickers bar. So we don't know what questions to ask about our food. Let's go back to the help that you talked about to continue to build this argument before I ask you the inevitable question of what do we do about it? You talk about three practices in restaurants, wage theft, tip skimming, and abuse. And I'd love to take those individually about restaurants because these were incredibly disturbing. Let's talk about wage theft first. What's going on there? Well, wage theft has many faces, but in general, it's a catch-all term that means somehow workers are being cheated out of the money that they're owed, they're promised, or they're legally entitled to. And this takes many forms. You know, the most common form in restaurants would be day wages, you know, uh, in some restaurants, cooks are paid hourly. In some restaurants, they're paid a day wage. This has largely been phased out over the last decade. But for a day wage, you'd get you know a set rate for the day, regardless of how many hours you worked. But in a lot of the places that pay a day wage, you work twelve or fourteen hour days. And you know, as was my experience as a cook, where I was on salary. But either way, same situation. When I finally did the math, and I divided you know my twelve hour day by the amount I was being paid. And I went, wait, I'm making less than minimum wage? And this is a fancy restaurant. We charge $100 for dinner. Uh, so that's one common form of wage theft. Something I've seen in the last five years is, for example, in Ontario, three or four years ago, the minimum wage went up. A common form of wage theft when you're making the hourly rate is, you know, I talked to many cooks who they work for high-end restaurants where, yes, they're paid a good wage for the hour, but then they're given an amount of work that cannot be done in the number of hours that they're scheduled for. So not that they're ever told explicitly to do this, but everyone comes in two hours early every day. You know, you add all that up. Because if you don't, you're going to fail and you'll get fired. Yeah. And that's a common managerial philosophy for a lot of chefs. Give a cook a longer prep list to do than they can accomplish in a day and they will get faster. And it's true. They'll get faster. But until they do, they're being stolen from. They're, they're not earning what they're supposed to be earning based on the hours they work. And when they do inevitably get faster, you'll just give them more work to do. Or you promote them to sous chef, put them on uh, salary, and then expect them to pull up the slack for the employees below them and to, in turn, exploit those employees in the same way that they were worked over. Sounds like a fantastic promotion. Fantastic in quotes. Uh, tip skimming. I think I know from the name, Corey, what tip skimming is. But is this literally the ownership of the restaurant taking some of the tips and hiding them for themselves? Yeah, it can be. I think in its most common and worst version, that's what it is. You know, this is one of those things that changes from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But in a lot of places, certainly where I come from, it was eventually made illegal for owners to take a percentage of tip unless, and this is specific to Ontario, I think, unless those owners uh, worked a shift, you know, like in the case where, hey, I've got a restaurant, i got 10 employees, but I actually worked 
a shift as a host or as a bartender or as a server, in which case, sure, I'm, I'm sharing the tips with staff. But in most cases, it's illegal for owners or managers to take a percentage of a tip. And tip skimming is often either, you know, you've got the owners finding some other way to skim the tips, either saying, oh, we're going to take 2% of gross tips for breakage or for, you know, some employee fund that's really my money, or somehow re-diverting some percentage of tips to managers who shouldn't be getting a percentage, but should be getting a proper salary, but using that to bump up their pay because you're not paying them what they're worth either. I get the feeling, by the way, that you're, you don't seem to be a big fan of the whole tipping system at all anyway. Yeah, I'm not agnostic about tipping. I'm pretty anti-tipping. I'm, I'm realistic that we're not currently about to um, revolutionize that model. It's not happening today, but I'm definitely firmly in the uh, camp of abolishing tipping. And abuse, uh, you and I, before we hit record, we're talking about a celebrity chef from back maybe 20 years, uh, Charlie Trotter in Chicago, and about how he was known for abusing the hell out of his staff. Grant Atchett talks about it publicly on his Netflix Chef's Table special. Other people have talked about how Charlie Trotter treated people. You talk about how abuse in the kitchen can be horrible. Yeah, I was fortunate in my cooking career. I never worked for anyone who screamed at us. I mean, I had one boss who was, uh, to me, a, a terrific boss, and he probably yelled at us maybe a couple times, like once a year, he'd kind of lose it. I think everybody loses it once a year. Everyone's going to blow their fuse sometimes. But but I think doing that once, Corey, not to cut you off, but I think doing that once just shows that you're passionate. I mean, but I'm talking about if you mm-hmm. own a restaurant and you're passionate and you really want to make sure the customers serve well, losing it once a year, to your point, I think is perfectly understandable. Losing it every day is a whole different, different thing. Yeah, there's a difference between reaching a breaking point because something went wrong at work plus your car broke down, plus you're going through a hard divorce and you acted in a way that you regret. And then the next day you go and you apologize to people. There's a difference between that and ruling a workplace through fear. And I think we can all see the black and white difference through that. We have a moment now with a great potential for change. And we have a moment now where restaurant workers, uh, servers and cooks, I think are much more aware of their rights and are much more willing to advocate for change within their workplaces and within their industries. The attitude of the boss who's like, I'm brilliant. The people here are here because I'm brilliant. So I'm not going to second guess myself. If they do anything less than the perfection that I imagine I'm going to yell at them. I think that sort of person that behavior is becoming less and less acceptable because there's just a crop of 21-year-olds who are not going to put up with that. Yes, there's people who want to go learn at the feet of the master, but the world is too full of young people who have no patience for that old type of toxic chef mentality. The next time we have you back, I want to dive more into that. But one one thing I want to point out to everybody listening was Corey wrote this great section of the book about the problem with celebrity chefs and about how people whispered to you that these people are rock stars. And then you said, you know, I never talked to Nikki Six from Motley Crue about how he manages people. I remember writing that and I called my aunt because she um, she was married to uh, a musician who, uh, who was in the band, uh, Richard Manuel. And uh, she ended up touring with uh, Aerosmith wow. and uh, Ringo Starr and, and a bunch of other musicians. And so I called her to ask her, I'm like, am I being unfair to rock stars? And she said, you know, it's hit or miss. And she's like, look, I'm not going to name any names in your book. But like, yeah, there are people that I work with who like 
absolutely are like making sure that everybody has dental coverage and is taken care of. And there are, you know, famous musicians who were like, yeah, I'm going to get a seat on the airplane for my hat. But the people who work for me, like they're garbage. Why would I care? Yeah. If you ever want to, this is a whole tangent, read about Pete Townsend and what he did with the who. Like just, uh, I I remember listening to Roger Daltrey talk to Howard Stern about how there were three different splits. There was the writing credit, then there was the band performing credit, and then there was the producing credit. And they'd split it into thirds. And Pete Townsend kept the whole third for producing it, the whole third for writing it, and then split the last third three ways is my understanding, the way I remember Roger telling it to Howard. So he ended up getting all this money. And I remember Howard Stern saying to him, like, what do you, what do you do? And Roger Daltrey said, I had a choice. I could be in or not, right? I'm either a part of the who, or I'm not a part of the who. We knew Pete was ripping us off. What was my choice? But to get back to your point, I feel like when you're around a celebrity chef, that's the way a lot of these workers feel. I got this great opportunity to work with. He's dead. So let's talk about him. Charlie Trotter. I got this chance to work with Charlie Trotter. I'm going to just suck it up. That's been the prevailing attitude for a long time. I think it's starting to change. It's hard to tell right now because we've been in this moment for the past five years where people have been you know, calling out uh, famous people and lobbying accusations at them. And in most cases, I have no reason to doubt these accusations. But some of what we're seeing is these sort of very unspecific mea culpas from the name above the title chefs where they, you know, they'll write an essay that gets published in some popular forum that basically says, I used to be an asshole in some very unspecified way that I'm not going to be legally culpable for because I'm not saying what I did. And I don't want to be that guy anymore. And I'm going to be different in some way that I'm also not going to be specific about it because then you could hold me to account for whether or not I've successfully changed. You know, that person would then get the accolades of like, bravo, this is why they're an industry leader. I think we're also starting to call bullshit on that as well. Yeah. But that's been the attitude, you know, I think from a lot of sort of the older, established, successful people, but who are also canny enough to see the writing on the wall and that the times are changing, they go, okay, so I have to signal that I'm changing with the times, but I can't make a confession because then I'm done. Right. right. (laughs) And And there's always going to be a cult of personality around certain creative leaders in any industry, you know, and I can't... I can't get into music or film or tech or finance or whatever the the specific nature of cult of personality in those fields, because it's a similar thing, right? You want to work in a creative area, you go to work with the best people and you do anything to work with them. Just looking at restaurants and chefs, one thing we can start to do is we can change the conversation. I can't tell young people don't have this attitude, don't go and and let yourself get exploited by these wizards. But, you know, we can change the way we craft food media. You know, the whole, the top 10 lists, the deification of chefs, the endless profiles, you know, once this person is a famous chef, we just write about anything they do. They're a celebrity now. Uh, And my line in the sand came to a point where I just said, like, I, I don't want to write and I don't want to read about any chef unless it's about, like, how they run their business. Like, I'm if their food is really great, great. I'd love to eat it, but I don't, I'm not really interested in like the glorification of their creative process. Uh, what would be more 
more fascinating to delve into and to share with people is like, oh, here's someone who has created a work environment that fosters people uh, who can go on to lead their own successful creative lives or start families or own homes. All the things that workers in these restaurants are completely cut off from by their subservience to the system. We spoke to a gentleman named David Bodanis recently about the art of fairness and about how his biggest takeaway, Corey, was it is possible to be a fair, good person, not a pushover, but a fair, good person to make it. It's very difficult. But I think that for a restaurant, especially, you should be able to feel that. I think that if everybody's working and pulling together, to use a, a, a rowing analogy, everybody's rowing the boat together, it makes the boat row much faster. All right. We built this argument of... We don't know the questions to ask about our food. We're not sure where it comes from. We, we don't know which restaurants are paying people fairly. We, we're not sure what's in the food that we're eating at a restaurant. We're completely disconnected. I won't even get us started. I was all excited, but I'm looking at the time. I won't get us started on delivery apps, which you call a scam. And I generally am right there with you, brother. And Dr. Juliet Shore was there. And I know, and I get hate mail from our listeners who drive for Uber Eats and stuff every time. Listen. I'm, I'm not going to argue with you guys. I'm just going to say, if you read Corey's book, it's just more proof that yes, you can make money driving for Uber Eats, but Corey, do you remember the Hunger Games? May the odds be ever in your favor. Remember that? The odds are not in your favor. I feel like you're suckering me into talking about something that you said we weren't going to talk we can't, about. We can't, go, we can't go. We can't go. talk about the scam of third-party delivery companies, but I, you told me not. We have to I save that for the next part. time you're here. This is turning into a four-part okay. Corey Mint series, I think. But, but to get into this, everybody's afraid to ask. We don't want to look stupid. We don't want to stick our foot in our mouth. And you reference uh, a popular old show uh, called Portlandia. Well, Let's listen to this. Our two main characters from Portlandia sitting down to order, and I'm wondering if this should be us. Hi, hello. My name is Dana. I'll be uh, taking care of you today. If you have any questions about the menu, please let me know. I guess I do have a question about the chicken. If you could just tell us a little bit more about it. Uh, the chicken is a heritage breed, uh, woodland-raised chicken that's been fed a diet of sheep's milk, soy, and hazelnuts. Okay, this is, this is local? Yes, absolutely. I'm going to ask you this one more time, and it's local. It is. Is that USDA organic or Oregon organic or Portland organic? It's just all across the board, organic. Hazelnuts, these are local? How big is the area where the chickens are able to roam free? I'm sorry to interrupt. I have exactly the same question. Four acres. Give me just a second. I'll be right back, okay? Okay. Four acres. That's Fred Armisen and Carrie Brownstein in that now very famous scene that you reference in the book. Maybe people do want to be that person. I don't want to ask them where the chicken's raised. What questions should we be asking that we're not asking? And how do we begin making a change here, Corey, in how we get served at restaurants? I think you, yeah, I think you nailed the, that question there. And, and I love that you set up that clip by calling it uh, an old show as if you were going to play a, a clip from the Andy Griffith <laughs> show. That skit, which was, which is great. And it's really, it's timeless. It had this unintended chilling effect because that that show landed at this time early in the uh, the great recession just shortly after that with this sort of convergence of people being more aware and caring more about the food comes from but also having money for the first time since the global economy had a, had collapsed and the impact of the virality of that sketch which everyone kept referencing 
was like nobody wanted to be that person because they present that as this like incredibly obnoxious bourgeoisie performative concern, which is unfortunate because, you know, all the questions they're asking, they're legitimate questions that, you know, when I found a, a butcher that I really trust, and I was like, great. So your job as a butcher is you ask all these questions. And once I've gotten to know you, I just trust you. I don't have to come in and ask these questions. I go like, so you've done the research. The huge problem once we start getting into caring about restaurant employees, the way we learn to care about animals is that one, there's that chilling effect of like, oh, we don't want to be embarrassed being that person. And two, the system is so opaque and not uniform. It's not like airlines or sports arenas where like there's huge employers and employment rules are so consistent across the field. Restaurants are so much more like fiefdoms, you know, or games. The solution has to be starting to let go of that self-consciousness that you're going to be obnoxious for caring, much less asking about those things. Mm. I think how you ask matters and you're not a detective. You're not a PhD student gathering information for their dissertation. Like you don't have to go in there with a notebook. Sending the signal to restaurants that like, we want to be part of that conversation. We care about supporting workplaces that pay a livable uh, or a fair wage once you start that conversation, that changes the dynamic. It stops being something that restaurants for the past 50 or 60 years says, this is the way we do business. It's uh, illegal. It's inequitable. And it doesn't bear scrutiny to the light of day, but it is the way it is. And so long as nobody comes and asks questions, we're going to keep doing it this way. Things change when people come and start asking questions. So when you do have those conversations, I think people should remember like, you know, ask a couple of questions and let it lie, you know, to keep your server at your table grilling them. That would, <laughs> you would become the Carrie Brown scene in front of some characters would say like, hey, what's this deal? You know, you go to a place that you've been to a hundred times and now to have a tip prompt on the, the payment terminal and you go, oh, there's a tip prompt. I've never seen that before. And there's nobody behind them in line. Ask them. So do employees get a hundred percent of these tips? Does management get any like simple questions? open up the dialogue and make it less palatable for those workplaces to, by default, screw over workers. I love the emphasis on having a little velvet on your hammer. I think that that is so important how you ask the question. And, and I also love the idea of voting with your wallet, right? And, and one thing that you point out in the book that I'd really like to emphasize for people that uh, as I was researching for this discussion, Corey, you wrote that people like you have made these lists all over the place. There are people that are listing restaurants that you should be going to and voting with your dollars. It's just a matter of going online and doing a little research instead of hopping in your car and, and just going. It takes less time to ask someone who knows where to eat than it does to sift through the um, questionable material you'll find online. I mean, if you're comfortable saying like, where should I eat my city or while I'm on a trip, then quick Google that city and you're going to get a dozen top 10 lists that all say the best restaurants in wherever it is. Um, who made those lists? What did they get paid? Did they actually eat in the restaurants? Are they their friends' restaurants? Did they go to the restaurant and have a bunch of free dinners paid for by a PR firm? You have no idea. And if you want to try to discern that, or if you want to go on Yelp and sort of try to figure out which reviews are real and which are fake, which are politically motivated, 
you can do that. Or it's pretty easy to find out who's a food writer in your town, yeah. who knows about this stuff and cares about it. Find their email and say, where should we go on our anniversary? Where should we go for my grandfather's birthday? They'll get back to you. They have lists upon lists. I love telling people where to eat. I love not telling people where to eat. I love helping people have a good dining experience. Steering yes, them towards right. something I think is going to be pleasurable. Everyone who cares about food loves that. So find those people and ask them. I think that's fantastic. You also talk about how James Beard, uh, the famous society, changing the way that they're doing ratings. They're including, my understanding is they're including now how restaurants treat their workers. Yeah, they started this list. It began a few years ago when it was sort of a list of top restaurants that included their sourcing and sustainability practice in the ratings. And in the inaugural year, I believe, or maybe the second year, they began to incorporate treatment of workers into these ratings. And then the pandemic came along and obviously interfered with the ability to gather that type of thing or the owners they were talking to their ability or interest or capacity even to be able to audit themselves in order to, to contribute to this thing. But at the very least, it speaks to a shifting tone in the conversation amongst gatekeepers, realizing, oh, I think the public cares about these things. We care about these things. And maybe there's more of an audience for people who want to go out, who, whether we want like a less expensive meal or a super luxurious uh, you know, anniversary meal. We want to go and feel good about the money we're spending, but it went to someone who wasn't treating their employees like crap. The book is The Next Supper, The End of Restaurants as We Knew Them. Not only all this, but you talk about the innovation, the change, and some disturbing trends from COVID. Uh, man, just tons of storylines here that I think we just touched the surface. Uh, Corey, but uh, available everywhere? Everywhere you buy books, you'll find uh, The Next Supper, colon, the end of restaurants as we knew them, comma, and what comes after. And what comes after. I didn't get that part. Of course, I didn't. Isn't that, isn't that wild that I didn't get what comes after at the end of what comes after? Anyway, Corey, thanks for hanging out with us and talking about, uh, well, creating a better food experience for all of us. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey, I'm Mr. Wow. And I'm Mrs. Wow from Waffles on Wednesday. And when we're not eating waffles. We're stacking Benjamins. Big thanks to Corey for hanging out. Oh, gee, that's no matter where you, how you look at it, people working in the restaurant. I don't know that I want to work in the restaurant industry. I don't want to ask my waiter where my chicken came from. I definitely don't want to be that person, but I also agree with Corey, maybe uh, paying a little bit of attention to how happy is your waiter? Does your waiter seem to be a little uh, scattered or maybe not happy with the working conditions? Cause that might be a clue that things aren't as great at that restaurant as they should be. Don't be a cheapskate. If you're going out to dinner, would you freaking tip good? Yeah, but still, if the owner's stealing the tip from the person that you're trying to tip, what BS is that? Well, I, I yeah. I mean, you're not going to know that ahead of time. I went to a restaurant on my recent vacation that uh, it was a really fun restaurant in, in Miami. I think actually, Doug, because you and I were talking about the Michigan State Purdue game and I was sending you pictures from this restaurant called Yardbirds. They had a mandatory 18% tip on the bill. Like there was an 18, and, and by the way, they put it in big, bold letters so I could see it, that you were tipping 18% to make sure that the waiter got paid. How do you feel about Not that? Not just for parties of six or more, it was, it's everybody. Yeah, there were only three of us and it was yeah. a mandatory 18%. Like we're making sure people get paid. 
Yardbirds is a national chain or large regional chain. Yeah. I wonder if that's true everywhere or if that's more localized based on economic conditions and, and you know, being able to hire people. I'd be curious. We don't have it. Believe it or not, we don't have it in Texarkana. I know you find that shocking. We didn't have a yard. Why would you need one when you've got the sizzler? Like everybody's like, we're not competing with them. Are you kidding me? No, 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 no. They own the market. Just let them be. Got to back off between that and the old country buffet. Like we can't compete in that market. Anyway, big thanks to Corey for uh, shining a light there. And if you want to read a book about what's going on in that industry and one that you can't put down. Uh, Corey is definitely the guy. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, OG, they put what you value first. I think I might go out to dinner today. Just order a whole bunch of stuff and tip really well. And go to a restaurant that that where everybody's happy and... Everybody knows my name? Yes. <laughs> I did, where have I heard that before? Uh, spending time with your loved ones, eating at a well-run restaurant. That's why they made bu- buying quality term life insurance actually simple. Head to stackybedjamins.com slash havenlife now to get a free quote. And their application's simple. It's online, affordable prices, no waiting several weeks for a decision. And OG, you remember those days, right? Waiting forever for that insurance decision. Are they really a smoker? Now all you have to do is just click a few buttons. Bada boom, bada bang. How many times, by the way, did uh, someone look you in the eye and tell you they weren't a smoker as you helped them fill out a life insurance application? And it turned out that, uh, like Maury Povich, your... <laughs> Your results prove otherwise. Yeah. Uh, we had the exact opposite happen. <laughs> Client said that they were a smoker and then got raided and then came back and went, wait, no, I'm not. Why did I say that? <laughs> We're like, well, <laughs> that you can unring that bell. <laughs> what the Just, heck, man? Can I, can, can I be raided? all that X they were on when they took the interview. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> can, can I, can I, just in case I want to, I want to start afterwards. I don't want it to yeah. limit me. I don't want the man limiting me to being a non-smoker. What if I want to start smoking? Yeah. Then what do I get to do? StackyBenjamins.com slash Haven Life. Get your insurance done, people. And uh, today we're going to throw out the lifeline to our friend Tabitha. Say hi, Tabitha. I know the caveats about asking for tax advice on a podcast, but some of the new regulations coming up have me concerned. I have several personally owned items from my home that I'm planning to list on eBay. Most were purchased decades ago, so I have no knowledge of their original purchase price. Assuming they sell, I have no way to know if it was actually a gain or a loss to appropriately report to the IRS. What is the tax implication for a scenario like this? Oh, Tabitha. Nice question. Oh, gee, so she's uh, got some stuff. She's going to sell it. eBay may be reporting uh, the fact that she made X amount of money. So she's got to have a cost basis. And if she's got no idea, how does she come up with that? Because that's where all the wealthy people get all their money. This is how you should make sure that wealthy people pay their taxes is <laughs> make sure those all those billionaires and trillionaires on eBay selling stuff. Right. That's that's where it's at. That's that's where they're going to get ding you. They're going to ding the billionaire on eBay. Uh, by the way, Tabitha said she's aware of asking the questions, uh, but I should tell the audience that obviously this is for entertainment purposes only. We are not a CPA and Tabitha already knows that she uh, should talk to her own tax advisor for the answer, but OG for entertainment only for giggles, just for S and G's just uh, riddle me this. How do I come up with that cost basis? I don't think you have to worry about it. I think, uh, 
it's pretty safe to say that if you're selling something on a secondhand site, eBay, Poshmark, you know, whatever, and you're getting rid of something, pretty safe to say that you're getting rid of it at a price less than you paid for it. Unless you're like the dude that I saw on uh, Antique Roadshow the other day that bought a Rolex in his second deployment in Vietnam and then decided it was too nice to wear. So he put it in a safety deposit box since 1974. Wow! And uh, the guy was like, a watch like yours that you paid $350 for is worth $400,000. The guy's like, oh my God. He goes, I didn't say your watch was worth $400,000. I said a watch like yours. Your watch, because you haven't worn it, and it's still got it, is worth $750. Oh. So that guy, he going to pay some taxes. You're selling grandma's antique clock because you inherited it 22 years ago. Uh, pick a number. I think what, a number. A, what the IRS looks at, in my experience doing this, OG, and tell me if this is wrong, if you make it clear that you tried to get the, the cost basis. In other words, you can show your work and you show how you came up with the number that was your cost basis. You are historically probably good. Uh, if you show, Hey, during this time, I don't know what I paid for it, but I know during this time it showed on X website that it was being sold for Y amount of uh, money. And if I can find two or three places that show that, then, then I'm even better off. But if, if my goal is to defraud the government, I got a problem. If my goal is to find that cost basis when I didn't think I needed one, you're probably going to be all right. Well, what she's worried about here is the fact that there's a proposal. And again, I don't know if this has been signed into law yet or what the deal is, but there's this proposal to have these third-party transfer sites, eBay, PayPal, uh, Venmo, you know, you know, people, you know, you buy, see your buddy, you Venmo them a hundred bucks to report all of those transactions to the government in excess of $600. Basically, if you do any sort of sales on eBay, because again, this is where all the millionaires and billionaires, this is where they get the money from. This is definitely not mom and pops who are, you know, doing a little side hustle, make a few extra bucks. This is, this is where we got to go after the millionaires and billionaires for not paying their taxes is in $600 increments on eBay. So that's what she's talking about. She's talking about this proposal. And again, it may have already passed. I'm not sure. But this proposal that's to say, instead of it being a $20,000 limit, which is what it is presently, if you process more than $20,000 through a processor and have over $200 or 200 transactions, that gets reported to the IRS on a 1099, right? You're making 20 grand on eBay. Somebody got to account for that a little bit. Sure. You're making 680 bucks on eBay. Now you got a 1099. You got to work, or, you know, you got to file that on your taxes. TurboTax costs you more because you, you got a 1099. Now you got to put. Now you got to put in what the cost basis is of your six pairs of jeans that you sold. You know, I mean, pick a number. It probably costs you more to buy than what you're selling it for if it's on this uh, this site. And to your point, I think Joe, documentation is going to win the day, right? If for whatever reason you're the person that the IRS goes after because you're unreporting your $719 of eBay sales, because again, that's where all the millionaires and billionaires hide out. If you've got pictures, just yeah, unlimited storage, right? So just take a take a couple pictures. These are the jeans that I sold on eBay. This is the date I sold them for 80 bucks a pair. They probably cost more than that to buy. So Thanks for the question, Tabitha. If you've got a question for us, head to stackybenjamins.com slash voicemail. And uh, we're sending Tabitha a code for some slick 
Stacking Benjamin swag that our friend Brad Lark over at Flying Pork Apparel makes for us. Very comfortable tees. And uh, Tabitha is going to take one of those home. What a horrible gift to give to Tabitha because oh, she's going to turn around and sell it. She's got to That's look for a yes. cost basis. There's not going to be a cost basis because she got it for free. She's oh, paying boy. the full boat tax it's on that It's a collector's t-shirt. item. I say collector's don't send item. her the t-shirt at all. <laughs> Just cut out the middleman. We will not send a t-shirt. We're going to do you a favor, Tabitha. We're not sending you crap. I think she'd appreciate that. From everybody, the sound of everybody. where her concerns are, I think she's really happy about that. I think, Tabitha, we're actually going to risk it, contrary to the advice from our council on this I am a podcast. CPA, certified podcast announcer. I am a CPA, so this is not just for he's, entertainment purposes only. He's, he's, he's legit, OG. He's legit. Speaking of legit, if you that's a horrible transition. <laughs> if you legitimately need help with your financial planning in 2022 or beyond. I shouldn't even go from Doug CPA thing to a true CFP, but uh, if you need help with your financial planning in 2022 beyond, you want to make better financial decisions in all seriosity, OG and his team taking clients in the new year. I'm a CFP too, but easy certified fund partner, fund partner. Everybody knows this. Yes. You want to have fun? Yeah, call it might be a different thing. StackyBenjamins.com slash OG gets you to OG and his team. And for a much more serious conversation than this one, uh, they will help you make better decisions in the future. All right, that's going to do it for today. Man, big live show coming on Friday. Uh, and, and great thing you can do that a lot of people don't know. Just tell your, your smart speaker. Just say, hey, play Stacking Benjamins, name of speaker. I should say it and have speakers all over the world go off right now, but I won't do that you can easily listen to this show or the next one. And thanks to everybody who passed this on to people either in the restaurant industry, people worried about their waistline, where their food comes from. Um, Big thanks to Corey. But of course, I'm going to leave that to you, Doug, to thank everybody. And let's do that right now. Doug, what should we have learned today, man? I'll tell everybody what they should have learned, Joe. First, take some advice from Corey Mintz. Be that person who asks about conditions at your favorite restaurant. Don't frequent places that aren't good to the help or your waistline. Second, IRA, max that bad boy out whether you use a regular IRA or backdoor. Stuff it with money now so you won't be worried about retirement later. But the big lesson? I guess you got to watch your tone while getting into the spirit of these crazy holidays. Telling Joe's mom to go take a hike didn't have the positive life-affirming reaction I thought it would after hearing all those stats on today's show. I was only trying to help. But apparently, she took it the wrong way, and now I've been told that I've got to go take a hike. So, yeah. Thanks to Corey Mintz for joining us. You'll find his book, The Next Supper, wherever books are sold. Where are books sold? I haven't seen a bookstore in years. Well, picture bookstores. Oh, like comics. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. This show is the property of SB Podcasts, LLC. Copyright 2021. And is created by Joe Salcihat. Our producer is Karen Rapine. The show is written by the brilliant Paulette Perhatch, with help from Joe and Doc G from the Earn and Invest podcast. Know how I know how brilliant Paulette is? She wrote the words I'm reading right now. While she's not putting awesome words in my mouth, 
She helps writers power their work and businesses power their words. See how she can help you at thatwriterpaulette.com. After you listen to our show, check out our show notes page written by our website manager and blog editor, Brooke Miller. Brooke and Joe also collaborate on a guide to the show and with lots of extras we couldn't include on today's podcast. Heck, they'll also throw in some life money lessons from Joe, and it's all free. It's called The Stacker, and you'll find it at stackingbenjamins.com forward slash stacker. Once we get all of this goodness bottled up, it goes over to our engineer, the amazing Steve Stewart, who helps the rest of our team sound nearly as good as I do right now. Want to talk about the show later? Mom's friend Gertrude is our social media coordinator and room mother in our Facebook group, The Basement. So say hello when you see us posting online. Here's a weird fact. She and Tina Eichenberg are never in the same room at the same time. To join all The Basement fun with other stackers, type stackingbenjamins.com slash basement. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and remember, stackers, whatever you do, give 100%, unless, of course, you're giving blood. Welcome to the after show. This is the part of the show that doesn't exist. Uh, back around Halloween, and I've been holding this for uh, a little while. Of course, Halloween uh, came right on our off week, but uh, this this is from the Mirror, fine UK publication. The Mirror. You know how you increase the value of your house? Here's here's a great way. You know, people say it's all kitchen. What is it? Kitchen, bathroom, and landscaping. Right? Aren't those the, like the three big things? that you can do that increase the house value the most? Well, here's an easier way. Uh, hauntings. If your house is haunted, that will increase your value of your house by up to 50,000 pounds. So that's what, up to about $70,000, uh, I think. Doing a little math in my head here. Haunted, huh? What if you had a haunted swimming pool? Would that like zero out? And not because the swimming pools are usually like a negative. So if it's haunted, now you're back at zero. So it's it, you're pretty much justifying the pool. Yeah. The bad news is, imagine being that realtor. The bad news is, I know there's a swimming pool, but guess what? The swimming pool's haunted. We've had four people die in this pool. That would be just here's the good news. <laughs> the good news. Is wow. Tons of people have died in this pool. So, Did you ever see the movie The Deep? <laughs> I've got one better for you. The shallow end of this pool is claiming victims every month. Well, Stackers, this episode is over, but you know what? Your homework has just begun, and it's not about what you know. It's about what you do. And partnering with the right organizations 
is a huge part of your success. Well, let me tell you, becoming a member at Navy Federal Credit Union could help you earn more and save more. Their certificate options could earn you more than standard savings accounts with competitive rates. Now, not all financial institutions offer you as many choices for savings options as Navy Federal does. For example, you could start your savings journey with a low minimum deposit, add money at any time, and watch your savings grow. Thanks to flexible terms, you can use Navy Federal savings options for all kinds of goals, short or long term. Considering a big home improvement project, maybe you want to consolidate debt, begin stackers with your debt strategy. Decide what the best terms are and conditions for the debt that you want to take and then decide on the products. And with Navy Federal, you could borrow up to 100% of your home's equity with a fixed rate home equity loan with zero closing costs or easily borrow as you go with a home equity line of credit. Both options could help make life's big expenses seem more manageable as you work your way through life. To learn more, visit NavyFederal.org. At Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equal housing lender, membership required. Terms and conditions apply, loans subject to approval.